infant for someone to say, uh, well, where are you from? And, and we say, well, we live in Istanbul. Imagine this. If they say, uh, I say, we, we live in Istanbul. And they say, uh, the person says, well, that must be exciting. What do you do there? And I say, well, what I do there is I proclaim his salvation day to day. Blank look. Well, you know, no, really, I want to know, what do you do there? Well, I, I ascribe greatness to God. You see the problem that's coming out here? We, we have a psalm that actually makes a great worship song. It has the words that we use in worship songs all the time. You know, it has lots of glories in it. Um, it reminds me, of course, of this wonderful passage uh, in Alice in Wonderland, which you can look up later about glory. Uh, and it has a scribe in it. Who, whoever uses this word, a scribe? I, I haven't heard anyone use the word a scribe except when they're reading the scripture for a rather long time. So we have a psalm here that seems to work great in church. We could put it to music, but does it pass the Monday morning test? Right? Does it pass the real world test? How does it play? How does it sing in our daily lives and in the world. Try this as another imagination exercise. Imagine that Maudlin Road Church, you people here, are the only monotheists on earth. The only worshipers of the one true God. Now, if, if, you, if this is easy for you to imagine, then I need you to come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll, uh, I'll also introduce you to Dan Steele, who will have a good heart-to-heart -heart talk with you. Okay? But, uh, you know, so, so it shouldn't be easy for us to imagine, but imagine for a moment that, that this is it. This is all the true God-worshippers in the world, and in a world that is just flooded with idolatry. Uh, you know, we, we know, of course, that the Americans are all idolaters. They, they have this rectangular green idol that all of them worship anyway, so that's easy enough. But, you know, the, everybody has their local gods. Uh, there's, there's the local gods in London, and there's, uh, you know, Scotland has loads of gods. They have their pantheon up there. And we know that the world is flooded with these idols everywhere we look, right? India, we don't even have to make them up, right? Because they have these, you know, thousands and thousands of gods. Right? So, so God's idols are everywhere, and you're it. You're the only ones who represent the worship of the one true God. And so the elders actually have a rather large task ahead of them because they're looking at this and they're saying, well, we're it. We'd, we'd better have a plan. Right? We, we need some, something to do about this because we obviously have a responsibility to this world of idolatry out here. How are we going to engage it? Uh, and so they say to Dan Steele, they say, well, you know, can you come up with a plan, come up with a proposal for our next meeting? And so Dan goes off, and for three days he sits in his study, and he, and he thinks, and he puzzles over this. And at the end he says, I have it. And he comes to the elders and he says, what we need is a theme song. Right? We need a theme song, and it's going to have all of the themes that we need to proclaim. And, and if he's a really good poet, what he's come up with is well, Psalm 96. Right? That's his theme song for how we're going to deal with this situation of being the only monotheist in this world of idolatry. This is how we're going to approach it. This is how we're going to go about the task. Now, 
That seems like a rather strange story. It's not all that far from how Psalm 96 actually came into being. Look back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And with many psalms, we actually don't get a very clear context for them. This is a rare exception to that. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we get the story of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God being brought back into Jerusalem. And actually, we need to back up because the story begins in chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles. In chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles we have the story of how David becomes king. And then, after he becomes king, he conquers Jerusalem. Well, after he conquers Jerusalem, just a couple of chapters later, he gets this idea in his head. He says, you know, the Ark of God, the most sacred object that Israel had. It represented the very presence of God among them, right? The Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred treasure of Israel. We all know that because we've read, we've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know, so we all know that. We know that it's sacred and important, but well, it had been neglected for many, many years. During the whole time of Saul, it had been neglected. It was off right outside of Jerusalem. And David said, well, we need this in Jerusalem. We're going to go and get it. And so in chapter 13, they try to do this. There is a rather serious mishap. Right? The ark is being transported on a cart with oxen. And it's being brought into Jerusalem. And there's all this fanfare. Right? There's singing and there's cymbals and there's a choir. And the oxen stumble, and the cart starts to tip. And this guy who is walking next to it puts out his hand in order to steady it, in order to keep it from falling. Seems like a really good idea, and he's gone. Uzzah, dead, right there, right? Just killed. Now this is really, I mean, Scripture is really interesting, isn't it? We're not going to preach about this particular passage. Some other time you can. But it's a really interesting story. And David is really upset. He's angry and he's scared. He says, how can we deal with this? We can't deal with, with, with this kind of thing happening. How am I supposed to bring the ark into Jerusalem if this kind of thing happens when you bring the ark into Jerusalem? So he just leaves it, abandons it, until three chapters later. Two chapters later, actually. Two chapters in chapter 15, the story of how the ark is finally brought into Jerusalem is told. And David gets the idea right. He says, well, only the Levites are supposed to carry it. And it has to go through these special preparations. And they have to be consecrated. And we need you know, all of this music and fanfare and whatnot. And so they have this big procession. They bring the ark into Jerusalem. And... They put it in the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle, and it's there, and the story ends. Right? The ark is there. They've, they've done this successfully. What does, what does David then say 
to the people of Israel and to the Levites after the ark gets into the tent of meeting. Well, let's read the story at the beginning of chapter 16. We'll read a few verses of it, beginning in chapter 16. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. Now, after David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank were Zechariah, then Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael. And they were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel the priests were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. And then we get this long string of selections that we're used to from the Psalms, and we're going to skip down to verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. And if you keep on reading to verse 30 or so, you've got almost all of Psalm 96. So Psalm 96 is decreed by David at this beginning point when Jerusalem is just new and the... the, Tabernacle has been set up and the ark is brought in. This is to be the anthem of worship for the people of Israel. Now think about this for a minute, okay? What, what, what's, what, what do we have? We have a tiny kingdom, the only monotheist on earth in this tiny kingdom, only true monotheists. We have a tribal chieftain, right? David, that's... That's all David is at this point, right? He has managed to conquer Jerusalem, but he's pretty minor. It's a tiny kingdom, tribal chieftain, bringing a sacred box into a pretty small city to put it into a tent. And as they do this, a choir sings, tremble before him all the earth. What's all the earth at this point in time? Well, think about it. Okay, let's stretch our minds a little bit beyond this tiny kingdom of Israel. All the earth would be Egypt. Egypt is on its 21st dynasty by the time we're talking about, right? This is, this is about 1,000 B.C. 21st dynasty in Egypt. The Great Pyramid has been there for 1,500 years. The god Amun-Ra has been worshipped regularly in the city of Thebes for 1,500 years by this time. Actually, I got that wrong. About 1,000 years, 500, give or take. About 1,000 years, the priests of Amun-Ra have been worshiping and leading worship of this god in Thebes. That's Egypt. What about Assyria? Assyria is the, the second Assyrian empire is at the height of its power. At this time, Nineveh is a grand city with libraries and temples, right? The city of Babylon is 1,200 years old at the time that David is bringing the Ark of God into a tent. 
And Babylon is filled with temples and has its pantheon and its priesthood. If you move beyond that, in China, the Shang Dynasty is 500 years old. In India, the Indus Valley civilization has been around for more than 2,000 years. Every one of these civilizations has elaborate priesthoods, elaborate pantheons of gods, huge temples of worship to other gods. And here, in this, on this little Judean hillside, in a minor city, you have a choir singing, tremble before him all the earth. It is, from the outside world, pretty absurd. And it is audacious because the claim that's being made is that here on this hillside, the one creator God of the universe has chosen to live. He has chosen this one place and this one kingdom and this one small petty ruler to be his own. And all of the earth had better tremble before him and most of them know nothing about it, right? The people in China, this would be news to them. So I can assure you that the priests of Amun-Ra in Thebes are not trembling. They're not trembling at all. Neither are the Assyrians. Right? None of the Egyptians are trembling. None of the Babylonians are trembling. The Indians and Chinese are certainly not trembling at this message. And yet, David can say, this is what we are going to sing. We are going to sing about how all of the nations are going to be summoned to ascribe greatness to this our God. It's an audacious claim. And you know, what's also interesting about it is that David knows better, right? He knows that people aren't trembling outside of Israel. He knows because he knows what the world outside of Israel is like. He knows how many enemies they have. The true situation of Israel in historical terms is captured much more accurately by another psalm. At the very beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm 2. How does Psalm 2 begin? Remember, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples conspire against the Lord and his anointed? Good question, but they do, right? This is the reality of the world in which Israel lived. That is, the nations around were all hostile to the Lord and his anointed. They were fighting against Israel. Israel was, through its whole history, threatened by Egypt, by Assyria, by Babylon, by idolatrous nations that were powerful and that mocked the God of Israel. And that friends, is also the story of the people of God beyond that time. When we come to the book of Acts, when the apostles are gathered around and seeking a verse that will help them to explain their situation and the situation of this new gathering of followers of Jesus in the world, what's the psalm they choose? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, they say, against the Lord and his anointed? They know what's happening. They know that it's the Romans and the Greeks who are raging against the Lord and his anointed and that they represent a movement which will always be under physical threat. And then that is the story of church history. The story of church history is the church always being beleaguered and opposed, the nations raging. That's the reality 
David knows what that reality is, and yet he says, we will sing this psalm. We, this will be our worship. Tremble before him all the earth, calling the nations to ascribe greatness to the Lord. How do you hold these two things together? Because we have on the one hand what we are told, this is to be our worship. We are to proclaim that God is the Lord of the nations. We are to summon the nations to worship him. And at the same time, we look out into the world and we do, do not see it happening. How does David hold it together? Well, we can only imagine, of course. He doesn't exactly tell us, right? But let's imagine, let's imagine a bit of a time machine. I, I've always loved actually uh, time machine sort of stories, time travel sort of stories. The very best bit in Harry Potter in my mind was always that time where Hermione was able, able to sort of bend time and get a lot more done because of it. It was just this wonderful thing. And time travel would actually solve so many practical problems. You know, just being able to every once in a while go a little bit into the future to be able to figure out what was happening and then be able to come back and tell you whether Brexit happens or not, you know, and, and tell you, does Trump get that second term or maybe even the third or fourth? So, you know, that would be pretty exciting to be able to do that. So time travel is this, this wonderful idea out there. It seems to me that we can imagine that Psalm 96 is allowing a little bit of time travel for us. It's, it's this thing we look into that where, where David is getting a glimpse into the future. In fact, Scripture often works this way. Right? Scripture is our, uh, provides us with an ability to time travel in a way that we otherwise wouldn't because we can look in Scripture and we get clear pictures of what the future will look like. And so as, as David looks into the future and prescribes this anthem of praise to the people of God, what is he seeing? Well, he is seeing the nations as pilgrims flowing into Jerusalem. Right? This, this is what he's seeing. He's seeing the, this anthem of praise, the songs of praise coming from these people from Egypt, from Assyria, from all these different nations who are turning and coming. And what are, what are they doing as they come? It's really interesting. As they come to Jerusalem, he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Now that's actually a pretty interesting verse because to bring an offering into his courts would be to bring a sacrifice into his courts. So the people of the world are bringing sacrifices into the courts of the temple, but it can also mean tribute. So it's a play on words. They're bringing sacrifices and they're bringing tribute to the true king in his temple. This is the nations of the world that are flowing in. And David is not alone in this picture that we read a passage from Isaiah that captures exactly the same picture earlier, how God is summoning the nations to himself. And, and those nations will be drawn from every island, from every distant point, and they will flow into Jerusalem. This was the hope of Israel. Israel saw as the future this time when all of the nations would truly be blessed by Israel and would turn their faces toward the one place where the God of 
of the universe was being worshipped and the only place you could come to sacrifice and receive forgiveness. It's a brilliant hope that he's laying out. This is what he says the future is. He's glancing, he's looking into the future for us and he's painting this picture. He says, sing about it. Sing about this future. What else does he see? He sees God coming. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. And how does he come? He comes to judge the earth. Now, the judgment here is not, I think, the judgment of wrath. Right? That is part of God's judgment. But the judgment that's being talked about in this psalm is the bringing of justice. The bringing of righteousness. He's coming as the faithful judge who brings deliverance and salvation to the peoples of the earth. And we way underestimate the hunger that the people of the earth have for true justice. We way underestimate it. There is a hunger out there for people to be delivered from their bondage to injustice, from their captivity. It's in everybody's heart at, in some way. And when we work with people who have been deeply oppressed, whether it's women who have been abused and sold and traded, or whether it's children who have suffered what children should never suffer, or whether it's people who have been put in prison completely unjustly, this hunger for justice is something that God says, I will satisfy. God will come. And when he comes, he will bring justice and he will satisfy that hunger that humanity has for a true judge who will be a true deliverer as well. So David looks into the future and he sees this. He sees justice coming down on the earth. He sees the time when the, the captives will be liberated, when, when those who are blind will see, when there'll be freedom from the bondage of sin. He sees all of this and he, and he puts it in an encapsulated form into this psalm. What else does he see? He sees as he looks out into the future, he sees a time when creation will be completely renewed and restored and will sing out in joy to its creator. At the end of the psalm, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. At the coming of the righteous judge, not only will justice be satisfied, but the created order will be freed from its bondage as well, and its groaning, and will break out in song before the Lord. So we have this amazing vision that, that David gives us in this psalm of what the future will be like, the nations flowing into Jerusalem, true justice, and all of creation renewed and restored. And he knows, he knows as well as we do, that the reality of his world at that time is not this. Right? He can look around, he knows that the reality is Psalm 2, and he knows that the reality is pain and groaning and suffering and injustice, and yet he says, this is what we sing. What do we see when we look out at the world through the lens of Psalm 96. Well, very early this morning, actually late last night for us, 
go back 12 hours, on small Pacific islands, the people of God began to gather to worship the Creator. Small churches in places like Fiji. Then, you know, about, but about an hour later or so, the people of New Zealand and the, and the thousands of churches in New Zealand started to gather and to join their voices in this chorus of praise. And then uh, the Australians joined in a little bit later in waves going across Australia until then we, we finally got to Japan and South Korea. And then the house churches of China started to join in and awaken to praise. And, and, and we move across, as we move across, imagining this great chorus of praise from every possible language, we start to get this picture of this huge family of God spread out throughout the world, meeting in small groups, meeting in large groups, and it moves on and on. We, we, we move across Bangladesh and India and Pakistan, and then finally we get to Africa, and in Africa, of course, it gets a lot more exciting and the music gets much better. And, and then, then we, we, the Iranian church joins in, and the Turkish church the churches throughout the Middle East, churches in Saudi Arabia that have to hide themselves and yet gather to worship, churches, and then finally we, we get into Europe and we get here and, and we're meeting and we're joining in this chorus of praise and it will continue long after us until finally it gets to the west coast of the United States and then moves on and you know that then it will start all over again because Christians do not just worship on Sunday. And it will go round and round and, and bigger and bigger. And this great chorus of praise gives you a picture of the worldwide church of God. And what is it? It's Psalm 96 taking shape. Psalm 96, the, the Gentiles, the nations, have begun this turning to God. And they're everywhere. And it's something that David could never have imagined. It's something that the apostles could hardly have imagined. And yet, the worldwide church of God is this spectacular family that God has put together. So we see that as we look at Psalm 96. And here's something else we see. And here, we hear that same church groaning. Because we see churches closed by hostile governments. We see pastors imprisoned. We see people tortured and killed for their faith. So we see the amazing work of God and we see the rage of the nations and we see them at the same time. What else do we see as we look through the lens of, of Psalm 96 out at the world? Well, we, we see everywhere we go, we see Believers in Jesus showing amazing mercy and compassion to people who are powerless, to people who are suffering. Right? We see the volunteers at the refugee center who have no particular reason to spend all of this time and energy caring for people who are suffering, and yet they do. Right? And people who give huge amounts of money all over the world in order to try to relieve this suffering. And everywhere we find Christian communities, we find this. We find people 
doing their best, trying hard to establish justice, to bring about a liberation from the bondage to sin. And it's not just these physical ways, right? We find Christians trying to do it in spiritual ways as well, trying to free people from their bondage to sin, trying to free people from their bondage to unforgiveness and evil. And so this is going on throughout the world as well, and, and, and it's Psalm 96 taking shape, right? As we see that God working through his church is establishing justice. But we also are overwhelmed by the people that we cannot help and by the cries that we don't seem to be able to answer and by the overwhelming amount of evil and suffering in the world. So we have both of them. We have Psalm 96 and the promise of it and we have the reality of these, this world and we hold them in tension. And then what else do we see as we look at Psalm 96? Well, we, we walk in really beautiful places. Uh, one of the places in Oxford that Carol and I love to visit and walk in when we come back is Port Meadow. So hopefully we'll have a chance to sometime. So imagine we're walking in Port Meadow and, and as you're walking there, it wouldn't be hard to imagine creation celebrating its creator. We, we can hear the wind through the trees and, and we can hear the trees singing. We, we look out on, the, on fields of grass and we see them dancing, the way that Psalm 96 depicts it. And, uh, and, and we, if we're by the ocean, we hear the pounding of the surf as praise to God. And so wherever we go in the natural world, we'll, we'll hear these echoes of praise to the Creator. And then we'll see something else at exactly the same time. We'll see everywhere signs of decay. We'll see signs that this is just fleeting. We'll, and, and we'll know this is only for a moment. And so we'll often be filled with this deep longing, this deep unanswered longing, because we know this is not something that's lasting. And yet we taste the beauty for such a, a brief, beautiful bit of time. And then we'll also have this experience of walking through our cities, concrete jungles, where Nature, creation, is hard to find, where the least little tree is celebrated because the concrete is everywhere. And we'll also hear the stories of creation groaning in other ways. And so we see Psalm 96 in our experience of nature. We hear these little bits of praise from nature, and yet we also hear the groaning. So where we stand in our task as Christians is between these two things. On the one hand, Psalm 96 and its vision of the future, which we have foretastes of, and on the other hand, the reality of the world in which we live, which is groaning, and where we groan inwardly as well. In the words of Romans 8.22, the creation groans, and we see it and we hear it. So the creation groans and we have this song of hope. And how do we hold these together? The task of the church and of believers in the world is to live in this world and engage with that groaning and at the same time to confidently and triumphantly sing as an anthem Psalm 96 which holds out our hope for that world, 
a hope where the nations will flood back into the worship of God, a hope in which justice will be established, and a hope in which the creation will be restored fully and will sing out without any encumbrances in joy to his creator. And you know what? God has, God has given us a foretaste in so many ways, but how do we know that this is true? How can we hold on to this hope with absolute confidence? How can we, in the words of funeral services that I love, and we should say more often, how can we have the sure and certain hope? It's because a thousand years after David, in a garden, two women went to a tomb. And at that tomb, they found it empty. They found no one there. And they learned and they knew, as did all of those who were mourning for three days, that death had been defeated forever. That sin had been defeated forever. And that the new creation had begun. So we are experiencing the beginnings of the new creation that will come to us for sure because the first fruits are already there and the first fruits are in the followers of Jesus, his church. He planted us as seeds of this coming kingdom. That's our task. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for your word, we give you thanks for the vision that you give to us as we look into the future. Lord, give us the faith to believe it. Give us the faith to hold on to it. Give us the faith, Lord, to know with certainty that you, as the risen Lord, are bringing about your purposes, that you are recreating all things, that you are just and you are loving that you're calling people to yourself. Give us the privilege of being a part of this task that you are doing and that you allow us to be part of. In Jesus' name I pray.